So yes, thank you for having me. My name is Justin, and I really, truly am blessed to be here. Uh, I have three kids who we also brought with us, Owen, Olivia, and Eliana. My beautiful wife of 14 years now, um, Trisha, is here as well. And like Jordan said, I had a fantastic opportunity to connect with him and actually met Dana, you know, around the same time I met Jordan, and so we've been friends uh, for a long time, and I actually uh, knew Torin as well through my college experience. I took a class from him, which I aced, obviously, and he says, I, I think he would say I was the best student in the class. If not, then he will know. He's never going to talk about it. He'll never know. So, uh, but, so I, I, I have a lot of respect for Torin and Jordan, and today through worship, just uh, this leads somewhere, but I, um, I was a bit weepy. Um, I am a crier, I'm mainly because I think I'm Sicilian. But, uh, so I'm, I'm emotional, okay, and Jordan and I have had long conversations about planning a church for a number of years. Um, sometimes it was more, more me, more him, sometimes both of us, sometimes what's going to happen, what's God going to do, and, and through it all to see his friendship with Torin just expand and grow, and so now to be a part of this, to see it in action, it's a beautiful thing. You are blessed, you are blessed, you are blessed with a worshiper and a great, great dad, a great friend. So thanks, Jordan, and, um, and, sh and surely thanks to Torin um, as well and, and Brenda for having me. So <clears throat> like I said, I, I am a crier. I'm emotional. I think in general I'm just leaky. By that I mean I sweat a lot, okay? So this is one of those things that you should just know right off the, right off the bat. He mentioned that we lived in Nashville, Tennessee. That's where we relocated from. It was really in Nashville as a youth pastor that I recognized I sweat a tremendous amount, okay? This is awkward for you, that's why I keep mentioning it, because it makes me feel slightly less awkward, but the deal was that I finally got so fed up with it <clears throat> that I went to see a doctor, which again, is somewhat embarrassing, it's not the thing that you want to go to see a doctor about, but I said, hey, I just, I sweat profusely, I think more than the average person, and so, you know, they did these tests and all this sort of thing and blood work or whatever they did. And the guy came back and he said, yeah, you know, you have, uh, you do, you, you sweat a little bit more than the average person. You have what we would call axillary hyperhidrosis. Axillary hyperhidrosis. Somebody just found freedom today. Do you know what I'm saying right there? Right there. Five minutes, golden. You know, if, if, you, if it's you, then you just know. So I, I'm like sitting on the edge of the, the table covered in paper, which is always weird, and I'm like, what, what, what's, what do I do? I don't understand, like what, great. And he says, well, there's a couple of things you could do. You could get like Botox, but that doesn't last forever, which I was like, that's unusual. And he said, or what you could do is uh, basically just wear sleeveless shirts as often as possible and drink ice cold beverages. 
what? Like, did you just prescribe for me to become a redneck? Like, that's, that's your answer that I should just switch to solo cups and cut off denim shirts? So I naturally, I did. That's exactly what I did. As often as possible, that's what I'm found wearing. And I, and I thought to myself, that is the craziest thing. I don't, I don't want to become someone different. I just, you know, I mean, I know we live in Nashville. I know it's country music. It's like, it's a theme. I get that. I don't know who's paying you, but okay. We don't like to be told that we have to become something different. We can do, hey, you got to do this. Take a shot. Take some pills. You know, then your sweating will dry up. And then I'm terrified of cancer. That's why I don't use all the clinical deodorant, by the way. So there's, there's things that you can do. But we don't like to be told that we have to become something different. Now, you guys find yourselves in the middle of a series called Momentum, where I understand you've been going through Acts. I've tuned into some of that and heard bits and pieces, but it was essentially through circumcision that any Gentile became a Jew. Now, fast forward to the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, and now we're living in a truly, actual, radically new age, something very, very different, where the Jews of old that were entered, that were brought into the covenant of Israel through Abraham and Moses and all this sort of stuff, all this Old Testament, Old Covenant language, they, they were entered into the covenant through circumcision. And now that Jesus has come and risen and, and departed, he left with him the Holy Spirit who forms this church. And of course, as we know, they go out to, to essentially all, all the corners of the world. But it's through that process that something incredibly tense begins to happen, right? The first churches and gatherings are largely primarily made up of Jews, messianic, believing, circumcised Jews. So now what happens when you're a Gentile in that area? Well, Acts 15.1 says this, <clears throat> that essentially, and I'll paraphrase at the start, you can turn to Acts 15, by the way, I do a terrible job of that. Turn there, flip there, your Bible, your iPad, whatever, it's all good. So you're in Acts 15, I'll give you a second to get there. These early groups Oh, we even have people coming down here. Jordan told me that. I failed to remember. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. He will give you a Bible. Um, I'm going to trip over this cord. Uh, so these early groups of people are, are literally now in having to engage in a very tense conversation about what it means to become the people of God. And Acts 15 tackles this head on. It begins essentially saying that there were some Jews, some people, some teachers of the law who actually come down to this church at Antioch and they say that the Gentiles, they, they could not be saved unless they were circumcised according to the custom of Moses. These are well above 18-year-old men and groups and their families and they're saying, no, no, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. Talk about a momentum killer, right? Like nobody wants to talk about that clearly. I think that's why Torrin had me teach on this week. He told me, he said, hey, I'm going to be gone. Can you teach on circumcision? I was like, sure. And that's all that's happened. <laughs> so Jews understood circumcision and referred to it as something called bris or brit milah, the, the celebration of this ceremony. Brit milah was when the baby was eight days old, they would gather, they would hand the baby then to a priest, they would hold the baby, they would cut off their foreskin thereby drawing blood, thereby allowing them entrance into the covenant. It was a seal. 
It was the seal of the covenant, and more than that, it was a sign. It was an outward sign of something internal, that they became a Jew. Now, later on, this is really rooted in Genesis way early 17. So Genesis 17, you do not have to go there, but essentially at one point in Genesis 17, we read God speaking to Abraham, saying, this is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. It was the seal. The circumcision of every newborn Jewish boy belongs to the essence of Judaism. It marks the entry into the community, and it actually symbolizes the ties between God and Abraham, and really specifically between God and the Jews. For them, circumcision is compulsory. It's just going to happen. It has to happen. And here's a newsflash that you may not know. Jesus was Jewish. So was Jesus, was Jesus, was Jesus circumcised? Yes, <laughs> Jesus would have been circumcised. And more than that, he stood as a symbol of what it meant to be clearly a person of God. And so with that came an incredibly tense Situation. That was the situation at Antioch. Now, the birth of the church of Antioch, you can read about in Acts 10 and 11. It happened in the year roughly 42 AD. Six years later, in 48 AD, that's where we find them in Acts 15. So by the time we catch up to them, the church is roughly six years old. Here's what I want you to know as we start this conversation. In the life of a church, Six years, is it very, very old or very, very young? It's young. This is you. This is you, TLC. Young, not bad, but young. Hold on to that thought. So this church, they end up receiving word that, hey, everybody here should be circumcised, otherwise you can't be saved. And they're like, "Er, what? They're like, no. So then they gather around their people and Paul and Barnabas and everything like that. And they're like, dude, this is what they're saying. And they're like, Paul's like, no way. Because I had this conversion in Damascus. We know we're going to go to the Gentiles and all this stuff. And so then they're like, well, what are we going to do? So they say, hey, can we send you guys to Jerusalem? You got to talk to James, the brother of Jesus. You got to talk to Peter. You got to talk to the apostles. You got to tell them that we are not getting circumcised, basically. That's what I think they said. And so they did. They head off to Jerusalem. And to cut this point short which is a circumcision joke, by the way. You don't get to make many of those as a pastor. <laughs> they get to Acts 15, and, or they get, to, uh, they get to Jerusalem here in Acts 15, around six, uh, around 6 to 11, the verses 6 to 11, and they tackle this question head on. Do you have to be circumcised in order to be saved? The answer, no. Peter says this here in verse 6, if you want to scroll down. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. You can imagine the discussion. It was tense. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's actually referring, I think, to Cornelius, which was not not very long before this. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, 
why, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? We could not keep the law. That's what he's saying. Instead, he says, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. That's Peter talking. Some were saying, unless they were circumcised, they could not be saved. And Peter comes right back and says, no, no, that's not it at all. And here's the deal, I think. I think that we're tempted to hear that and, and we think to ourselves, we can't relate to this, dude. Like, circumcision, no circumcision, it's your baby, <laughs> we don't really care, you know? It's not a big deal. We know this. But here's the thing. I don't think Acts 15 is about circumcision. Not really. I mean, it is, but it isn't. I think Acts 15 is about the identity of who we are in God and the shape of the church. I think Acts 15 is about the identity of God's people and the shape of the church that flows out of that. Specifically here, when Peter, and you can read about it, it uses some pretty strong language. I think he was quite um, verbose and aggressive, and he's saying, no, that's not it. And they were saying, but unless they're circumcised, they can't be saved. We think it's about circumcision. It's not. I think it's actually about the word unless. You see, that's a word that you've heard. That's a word that you know. In fact, that may even be a word that you've spoken. No, no. Unless they dress like us. Unless they, unless they buy the things that we can buy. Unless they act the way that we act. Unless they do this. You're not welcome in this place. You can't be a part of this unless you do this. Unless you do this thing, unless you do that thing, ah, not welcome. Maybe you've been a part of communities like that. Maybe you grew up in a community like that. Maybe you grew up in a community like that that wasn't even a faith community. But you know that through it, there was a faith expressed, you know? It's really about this word, unless. Unless you abstain from the things that I abstain from. Unless your kids go to the same school that my kids go to. I don't know how close we can really be. God says, there is no unless with me. Our identity as God's people is a diverse community. And more than that, it's a diverse family. That's really what I think the point of this is. The Jerusalem Council meeting in Acts 15, around the year 48 AD, speaking to Paul and Barnabas about a young church that is going through some incredibly tense conversation about what it means to be the people of God, and Peter and James come back and say, no, as far as we are concerned, as far as we know that the, the spirit that has given to us this revelation of who Jesus is and was and what God's heart is for the world, there is no unless. There is none. We vote for diversity. In fact, my first point today is this. The identity of God's people is diversity through grace alone. That did not sound pleasant. <laughs> still, still stuck on circumcision, I think. But we're past that. What I mean 
is this. The identity of God's people is established through sonship, citizenship, and his faithfulness. Not religion, not status, not effort, not even performance. It is nothing about what you're doing. It has nothing to do with that. Maybe that's a message that you've heard before. I don't know. I won't camp there. But here's what maybe you haven't put together before. This happens in 48 AD, and I think that this is the first time. This is an epic moment in the church. It's a vote for diversity. You are actually here today because of that decision in 48 AD. That's crazy. Because when they agree with God that his heart is for the Gentiles, they actually tip the scales toward diversity for every church across space and time for the first time. This decision by this council was one that reached into a future that was not yet imaginable. It almost did not happen. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they created a passage for every future church to exist as a diverse gathering across the world. There is no unless with God. Our identity as God's people is a diverse identity. Peter is actually adamant that there is immense value in having people in your community who bring a different perspective, right? There's this, um, there's this principle, a rule really within all of, all of art, and it transfers way beyond that. But the principle is this. Where you stand determines what you see. Where you stand determines what you see. It is no surprise that if I'm standing here in this place, I could describe this room in such a way that it would make sense to you, obviously. That there's light, that there's texture, that there's this thing here, there's a stage up here, and there's a TV, and there's seats, and all this stuff. And now you're worried. You're worried that I'm just preaching you to the very obvious thing, and I'm, I, I get it. I totally get it. If you were outside, and you described the building, though, to someone else who was in here on the phone, it would not look like this. You understand that, of course. Again, you get that. This is obvious. But here's the deal. As we go through life, we tend to gather with the people in this room. And metaphorically speaking, we tend to stay with these people in this room looking at the same thing. And do you know what begins to happen? You forget what it looks like from out there. Your diversity begins to shrink because where you stand determines what you see. And so you fail to stop asking the greatest questions from the other people on the other side of lots of things. And instead of a room, you're talking about God. And where you stand determines what you see. So when we are careful about keeping people out, unless they do this, unless they do that, unless, 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 we actually limit ourselves because our perspective is limited to where we are standing and what we are seeing. Instead, might I encourage you to remember that we are a diverse community. The church, the global church in Christ across all space and all time. Find people who are standing in different places, seeing something different of who God is. Because as they begin to describe him, you will think to yourself, ah, I didn't know that. That's not my experience. Tell me more. Our identity as God's people is a diverse identity. But this was not the only gift that the Jerusalem Council gave to us in 48 AD. 
In fact, as we keep reading in Acts 15, 28, so verse 28 and specifically through 30, this is what we read. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, this is James and Peter writing a letter back to the church in Antioch. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And then it says farewell, which is basically like peace. That's what that means. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. Now, here's the deal. I read that. First pass, you're kind of like, wait, what? Did they just exchange one rule for four more rules? Like, that's kind of weird, you know? It's like, no circumcision, woohoo! But we can't do anything else that we were doing before? Is that, is that what you're saying? Why list these four restrictions? Well, for one thing, we're not talking about salvation. We've already made that clear, but I still find it so shocking most communities that I'm a part of. They are 100% already a part of the family of God. Could they keep doing those four things, all four? Eating food that sacrificed to idols, eating things that have blood in them, eating things that have been strangled, even sexual immorality. Could they still do those things and be a part of the family of God? Guess what? They already were. And Peter said, they're saved. Has nothing to do with salvation. So why? Because they're not talking about that anymore. Talking about kingdom life, table fellowship, friendship, relationships, discipleship. Basically, they're saying, hey, now that we are a diverse group of people, what's next? How is this actually going to work? Look at or listen closely to the, to the list. It begins the same way both times, that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to or polluted by idols. Then it goes on to list three different uh, facets or, or kind of pieces of pagan worship, actually. All of these things are happening within a pagan, idolatrous, worshipful context, a temple context. Just like how the first part of the story was not really about circumcision, but it was really about the word unless, it was about identity and diversity, I think that this is actually really not about following the rules. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's not about the list. Our temptation is to point and say, oh, but Justin, see, look, look right there, they, they listed all of these rules. That's what it's about. I do have to perform. I do have to measure up. I do have to be religious. I have to do these things. Otherwise, I can't be a part. No, it's not about unless. I've already made that clear. Marriage is not about making the bed taking care of the laundry, picking up the sock on the floor. I don't know why. It's just always, there's always clothes on my side. I don't know. It's been 14 years. I've tried. I'm sorry. I just, I don't know. I do it, though, from time to time, but then I always forget. Marriage is and isn't about those things. You know that. Um, in fact, when I perform a wedding ceremony, I usually write an entirely original message for the couple, but I always leave one particular piece in. I always say to them, that it's not about being right or making a point. It's about being peaceful and making love. That's a good line. You'll get it in a minute. The Jerusalem Council 
is making a point to say, you don't have to follow these rules. You're under no obligation. But if you don't, if you choose to not follow these, you're actually choosing to leave us. You're choosing to divide yourself away from us. We're asking you to abstain. We recognize and concede the fact that we are so rooted generationally in this particular law that we just can't give that up right now. I think that's exactly the tone of Peter and James's letter, by the way. They actually say they reduce it. They're trying so hard, and the things that they can't give up are these things, because in their eyes of Jews, if you partook of this pagan worship, it rendered you unclean. Now, Peter and James are already saying, no, it's not rendering you unclean, but it's such a gasp to our, our community and our way of life, we couldn't even sit at the same table, and we want to. If the first thing we learned was that the identity of God's people is a diverse family, then the second thing that we learn from Acts 15 is that the shape of the church is unity. If first we learn that our identity is in diversity, then the shape of the church is unity. Who we are is a diverse family. That's who we are. How we live into that, though, is through unity. The most common word in this chapter, in Acts 15, is adelphoi in Greek, adelphoi. It, it means brother, but it really means kinfolk. Brother, sister, you're my kinfolk, you're my people. We're together. That's my brother, that's my sister, okay? That's the tone. Family. Our identity is diversity, but how we live this out is through unity. It's a beautiful picture, really. The way into unity is diversity. I'm going to say that again. The way into unity is actually diversity. You think about it. For you can have no harmony without multiple voices. You must have that first. That's identity. Who you are, TLC, is a diverse community. You have to have that first. But how you live now, in your young life as a church, would be best lived through unity. There is no unity without diversity. That's by definition. Unity has at its heart, though, surrender. A diverse group of people who wish to be unified will achieve none of that unless there's surrender. Unless there's something that you're willing to say, I let go of this. I'm willing to say, I don't see it the exact same way as you because my life and the way that I have been living, I've lived in a different spot. I've stood in different places and seen God respond in all sorts of ways. Seen families respond in all sorts of ways. Seen the law work in sorts of, all sorts of different ways. Seen all of this thing happen and unfold and in an, in, a, in an instant, I can tell you, this is my story. This is who I am, and this is what I've seen. And you are different than me. And so when we choose to come together, we're choosing for ourselves to surrender. We have to let go. In fact, the fruit of the Spirit is so often, it's so often misconceived to come about through things that you do. 
I have to be more patient because it's a fruit of the Spirit. That's what we would say. I have to, I just, I have to be more kind, you know? It's, it's the way of the Lord. But fruit of the Spirit grows, right? And you go back and look at this list here, and John, and John hits it pretty hard, right, with Jesus and the vine. And we learn that actually the fruit of the Spirit grows in the soil of surrender. It's us saying, okay, Lord, be those things in me then. I let it go. I recognize there is a diversity here. There will be differences. Oh, there will be tensions. And yet, we see here in Acts 15, the Jerusalem council coming together and saying, hey, look, we concede this. We need you to do this because our heart at the end of the day is that we would actually come together. Without unity, diversity is nothing more than chaos. Without unity, diversity is nothing more than chaos. That is what will await you and every other church who cannot willingly surrender and head towards unity. You will be diverse. I've already gathered that from Torn and Jordan in their heart. That is, that's not an issue. But without unity, prophetically I might encourage you to say, it would lead to chaos. That's not what God's heart is for. And here's the good news. It's not what you're destined for. Jordan and Torin, Dana and Brenda have spent significant time praying through what it means to be the people of God. And they have at their heart unity. And so I would encourage you, just take this from a guest. This is what I can do in many ways that I mean, Torin and Jordan could, but you know, you, you take it a little bit differently. Take this just from me and say, strive for that. Plant yourselves there. Be in that place of surrender that you might actually gain unity. And without diversity, unity is nothing more than uniformity, right? Nobody wants that. That's been the way of so many local churches in the past. We don't, we don't need that. We don't want that. That's not a reflection of who God is or what his heart is. So I'm not saying that either. We're saying harmony or peace is the way forward. Harmony or peace is the way forward. And I would even say it's the way forward into all new things. Jesus, when he came as a Jew and he did something entirely new. It left the people in a place of great um, struggle. <laughs> there was joy, of course. There's joy, there's power, there's all those things. But boy, it was, it was tricky that you had these two incredibly, very diverse, almost opposing groups of people who are now living together under the name and banner of one, Jesus their king, right? And so again, I would say to you that I think harmony or peace is actually the way forward into all new things, specifically into a future that you can't yet see, in a, into a future that you can't even imagine, something so good for Grand Rapids and beyond, the way forward, unity. So I say again, TLC, you are young. You are young yet. And the future is really, really bright. 
as you surrender, certainly as you welcome all people into your midst through an attitude and a posture that says, there is no unless, you are welcome here. Because we want to give you a platform and a voice to share. Humanity itself is a collection of stories. You must know that. That's why we gravitate to things like Snapchat and Instagram, right? We have to get out stories. And they know that. That's why they're making lots of money. But the local church, every local church, I realize I, I did not mean TLC. I mean, I did, but I didn't. I love the name, but that's, I meant every, every local church is a collection of those stories from people who have stood in different places and seen something of God, something of power, and have been given a place to speak to others, to share those things, to say, yes, we are diverse, but the way forward is unity, harmony, and peace. So, um, I said that I would share only one story. Jordan and I, this is not terribly embarrassing, I don't know, but Jordan and I, we would, uh, well, we had, we worked maintenance, okay, which is to say that we, we did some things. We fixed a couple of blinds. We, 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 did, we did some things. But mainly what I feel like we did, well, our friendship grew. That sounds, that sounds holy. Um, we became better friends. But we, we, we played a lot of games, okay? Uh, we tried to catch a muskrat. I'll let him tell you about that. That's not, it's nothing, it's, you know, it doesn't sound good ever when you're on stage and you have to say that. Like, you're not going to make a point about it. But we did, okay? We may have caught one in a toolbox, for example. That happened. But something else that we did was um, we, we played a game uh, we, we, we called pine cone ball. Again, none of this sounds good, okay? It doesn't sound good coming off of the stage. It's not something that normally a pastor should ever talk about. But... We, we had the keys to the in, entire school, and, uh, which, again, a terrible idea on their part, but they gave them to us. So here we are. We're running, we're running rampant as maintenance men with keys to the entire school as, you know, 20-year-olds, all right? You do the math on that. And one of the things that we had opportunity uh, to, to, to do was to get up on top of every roof on every building that we possibly could. We made that a mission. So we did that. And, uh, and then as we did that, we found that there were pine cones that just sit up there, unused, obviously. You need to put them to use. They have a purpose, of course. So up we are on the library, and we just, we, pine cone ball, which is basically like dodgeball. Again, totally immature, all right? I recognize that. I'm regretting this right now, even as I'm telling you. Um, <laughs> And so up, up we were, you know, on top of, on top of the a basketball arena, on top of the library, and basically just trying to peg people and, you know, just see. And, you know, I mean, one wrong step and you're off the edge. So the risk was high. It was a high-reward game. Uh, one of the things that I recall, um, though, is this. Our school that we went to was a very small school, okay? And when you're there and you're walking around campus, you, you tend to see everything in a very specific way. Small buildings, little groups of people, you know, it's just everything's kind of happening. It's all a buzz, it's all a whir, and there you are. It becomes a bit of a bubble, no matter what, I think. You just tend to get used to it. It's good. When we got up on top, man, the perspective was different. It was vastly different. It required a little bit of courage. It required... A couple of people, just in case one person got hurt, you need someone else to be able to go get help. Um, isn't that, though, something like where you're at now? 
I mean, is Jesus not calling you to exercise some amount of risk and fun to escape always what's here and to get a different perspective? I don't mean escape in the sense of when I die, I'm going to heaven. It's not what I mean. What I mean is invite other people into your midst who elevate your perspective. By that, you are choosing diversity and by giving them a voice, you're surrendering your own and you're actually allowing them to elevate your perspective that you become a diverse community through unity. And I think for you, TLC, the future will be so bright. At this point, we usually have a conclusion and we have a benediction of some kind, some, some pre-written application. And I struggled with this. Until I was praying about what I might say and God said in so many ways and words. The application is really for you to dream something today. You would hear a word of this, diversity and unity. And in five years, in 10 years, in 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, in 100 years, people will be in this place and it will be so diverse and it will be so unified. It will be a testament back to this day, much in the same way the church at Antioch received word from, from Peter and James as a six-year-old little bitty church, and, and they said, we vote for diversity, and the way through is through unity, and today you are here right now because of that decision in 48 AD. That can be true for you. You can be like that as you embrace your identity as God's diverse people and live and walk in a way of surrender unto unity, really through grace. So, take that, receive that. I bless you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we send you out with much thanks and gratitude from Jordan and Torin, Brenda and Dana. And we say, go, go be the church. Stand somewhere new and come back and share the good things that God is doing. I bless you and I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.